you start it and then it's like you think oh, okay now i know what i'm doing and then you start it and you're like no i have no, no I don't know clue what I'm doing. I, I don't know what i'm doing Welcome to another episode of The Inciting Event. I am your host, Zachary Steele, author of four novels, including Perfectly Normal, which hits the shelves July 18th, and I will talk about endlessly until then. Um, Okay, so on this podcast, uh, we'll not only take an entertaining dive into the moments our guests decided their creative path, but also talk movies, music, books, games, passion projects, revisit past projects our guests would now do differently, or characters they would wish they'd focused more on. In all likelihood, I'll drop a few time sensitive bombs on my guests and see what comes of it. <laughs> in the hard. end, <laughs> right. In the end, I hope that the inciting event is an opportunity to showcase creatives in a fun and informative way and to give you more reason to follow them and enjoy their work. Um, on today's show, I am joined by author Bill Bloom, who I have had the privilege of knowing for a good number of years. We're not going to say how many because that ages us. Um, but Bill, um, in, in addition to being an author or prior to being an author, um, actually got a degree in broadcast journalism um, and then worked as a TV producer until 2001 when he became a dispatcher for Henrico, I said that right, Henrico County Police Department. Um, if I didn't say it right, don't correct me. Um, in addition to being the author of a short story collection, Bill is also the author of uh, two novels in the Gideon Keep Vampire Hunter. Let me try that again. Two novels in the Gideon Keep Vampire Hunter series um, with his latest, West of Apocalypse, coming out on August 8th. And so uh, if you want to find out more information about Bill, you can go to billbloom.net. Uh, uh, you can buy his books anywhere and hopefully and um, and yeah, uh, that's it. We're going to go from here. Bill, welcome. Thank you very much. Glad to be here, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I had the privilege of, of getting to know you um, in 2001, ironically, when you were I don't know at what point you started. Um, oh, I was there then. Yeah, you, you were there then. OK, um, but in 2001, when the James River Writers Conference had its first event it was 2001 or was that 2002 now it was I'm, 2002 no. actually 2002 okay okay so it's 2002 so you had been there okay yeah. but um but yeah that was the the first conference and i got to know you then and I've, I've been fortunate to consider you a friend since then um but i honestly didn't know forgive me but i did not know that you had a degree in broadcast journalism or that you worked as a tv producer um and i don't need to know anything at all about that but i am curious how one gets from becoming a tv producer and going to becoming a dispatcher it's called disillusionment (laughs) (laughs) um i got into tv uh in high school actually i was there was a tv magazine class at my high school and probably the best thing i got out of it was my wife sherry because uh, we were in the class together. That's how we met, even though we'd apparently realized we'd crossed paths a couple times over the years. But we, I did the class, and I had a knack for it. I was really good. The teacher even said, it wasn't even halfway through the first school year that I did the class, and the teacher had already said I could be the editor of it for the next year. 
which was really cool. Eventually, though, I also ended up, I mean, before I even left high school, I was interning at one of the local TV stations, and I was working in production behind the scenes. Uh, it was, and it was in the, the number three station in the market, so it was interesting. I bounced over the next few years through college, I bounced back and forth between the number one and the number three in various jobs behind the scenes. And I eventually did get my degree in broadcast journalism and use it to be a TV news producer. That's how I ended up in Richmond, uh, which was one of the other good things that came out of it. But when I got to Richmond, uh, I started to realize how much there were things about the industry I didn't like. Uh, the worst thing, the most painful reality was that I remembered in high in college, there was a coworker of mine who was also in college working in production. And we'd gotten into a debate one night at work during some downtime. I was, we were arguing over whether or not journalism, TV journalism was journalism or entertainment. I was, you know, arguing hardcore. It's definitely journalism. He was arguing that was entertainment and Damn it, if he wasn't right, it took five years to realize he was, and I hated him desperately because of that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I just got to a point where I was very frustrated and angry about it, and I just had to get out. I ended up in the job as a dispatcher, just partly out of desperation. Uh, I needed something to do that would support my family. My son was born uh, less than... Uh, Two, less than three months before I started the job at 911. And mm -hmm. that, yeah, we found out he was going to be born about a couple of weeks after I had turned in my resignation in TV news. Yeah. Yeah, that was not good. Uh, so it was nice to have that job, have that stability. Uh, and I've stayed with it ever since. I'm at the point now where I've been doing it for God, this, this uh, November will be 22 years I've been in that job. Wow. And I've, I've reached the point now where I've gone through the phase where I had work wives to where I now have work children. And it's going to be one of those things that I know I'm slowly edging toward that work grandpa stage. Yeah, I was going to say, because uh, your bio indicated that uh, you earned the nickname Wildcat um doing this i i kind of i kind of figure that that might start to just morph into grandpa if it hasn't already <laughs> okay i've got several nicknames from the job the most well the one that i'm most notorious for though is lord of chaos lord of because chaos. there are people in the 911 center we work the radios we work for the fire and ems we work the, the radios for police and it just seems like when anything goes crazy i am somehow connected to it somehow some way you can find me in the middle of it I've, I've i am such a notorious magnet that i have actually been blamed for stuff even when i wasn't in the 911 center it was a matter of like i just happened to be off the floor and because i happened to go off the floor at that point it was bill i bill see so, so you've you've effectively just become a handy excuse for everybody yes pretty much and uh, and I've embraced it, and so yes, I am the Lord of Chaos. Gotcha. That's actually that's actually where the uh, thing on my Twitter thing why that describes me as that. Okay, but. all right. Um, yeah, I guess I haven't seen that side of you, so, uh, so maybe <laughs> good that, maybe maybe good that you keep that at work. Yes. Um, well, um, 
All right, so I, I definitely want to hear some about uh, West of Apocalypse, but we will we will get to that. Right. Um, in in the interim, um, you know this the this this whole concept of a, a podcast of the inciting event is just um, I I have people I want to talk to and people that I will learn that I want to talk to, um, and I just want to know things about them and things that they're passionate about. Um, and and I know you and I both have an affinity for uh, for Star Trek, and and I'm, I'm curious i i want to ask the loaded question of what are you watching and and i'm going to cross my fingers and hope that you give me the right answer oh it's picard okay good that's right i figured that was i figured you, you, oh. you'd do that okay all right so um i i am i am totally geeking out about this season um i'm, I'm sorry for those of you who are not star trek nerds please just bear with us for a few <laughs> minutes i promise you we'll get back to the content that interests you um, but I'm totally geeking out about this. I mean, not only for the the nostalgia of of getting the next generation cast back together, including Man. some 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 roles that I didn't expect to see come and go. Um, and um, I, I'm I'm very very excited about it. But I'm curious what 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 your thoughts are on it. Oh my god, dude! It's the I'm I I can't wait for the last episode. And I know we we jumped I'm, the gun. We're, we're like. We're one day short of the the season finale, but but yeah. Anyway, the last episode. Oh my god, I was weeping so many great. times, and it was just like, oh my god, the scene where they. I, I mean, they already kind of gave up the information even before the season began that they were going to have the Enterprise D back somehow. Right, and right, right. Seeing the Enterprise D, I was shocked at how much it choked me up. It was so wonderful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's it's interesting because I mean, I still, I when I have time to kill, I'll I'll go on to um, Paramount Plus and and I'll be like, okay, just I like I I just do a little scroll in my head and come up with numbers and I go, I'll watch that episode. And so I, I probably know way more about these episodes than you know I really should, you know, <laughs> to function as a normal member of society, but. Um, but being able to see all these little things uh, pop up and um, even even down to Moriarty, you know, this is little brief moment yes. of Moriarty and bringing back all the actors and finding a way to bring data back and all, all these little things that um, even Roe being part of it. Um, that you know, was that, an awesome surprise. I didn't I managed yeah. to avoid a lot of spoilers. And when she showed up, I was so happy. I know. Oh, right. Gosh. I yeah, love no, her I, character. No, I'm, I'm a big Michelle Forbes fan. I mean, she's been yeah. in a number of things that I've watched really good, but um, seeing her come back and and um, and I don't remember the actress's name that played Shelby, but Shelby coming back in the last yes. episode. Um, yeah, I mean, just the fact that they just say they really are hitting all the notes and and, and hitting notes, you know, um, it, it reminds me that, you know, this the soundtrack that they've used this. I mean, all the callbacks yeah. that they've used, I mean, um, I'm, I'm like one of my favorite pieces of, of um, music in, in the whole pantheon of Star Trek music is actually the, the theme to First Contact and the fact that they're using Jerry Goldsmith's theme as that sort of intro buffer, you know, is, is yeah. so cool. Um, uh, it, it definitely, um, it definitely got me emotionally to to hear all of this stuff but i'm curious what um what stood out what has stood out to you so far oh yeah the music is the big deal for me because i'm huge into movie scores and it, it, for when i was in high school and in college my favorite composer at that point was james horner and it's for most the original generation, despite the fact that Jerry Goldsmith has gone on to become known as the definitive composer for Star Trek, 
for me with the the original series cast and their movies it was hands down for me the james horner scores i feel like mm-hmm. he just had such a better score and in his in goldsmith's defense oh my god he got like the worst movies he got the worst the only two movies he did for the original series cast the first one which mm-hmm. snoo central and then the fifth one, which was, oh, dear God, no pun intended. I mean, what the hell was going on in, with, oh, but it was I mean, just, I, if oh. you want to, if you want to dive into that real quick, like the, <laughs> it, it's really interesting because I, I've never in my life learned how to count to six without using five until that movie came out. And, and, and I, like, I can, I can find myself at times going one, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, nine, you know, because the number five just doesn't exist anymore because that movie was such an atrocity but that's a sidebar so so please continue please continue well actually this can kind of bring it back a little bit though uh well okay we'll talk about the james horror thing but we'll come back to the fifth movie in a moment uh but the first episode of picard when they leave doc space doc and the titan there's Mm -hmm. a musical callback to uh at Star Trek Two and the piece for Enterprise Clears Moorings by James mm-hmm. Warner. And when they did that, I just, I lost it, man. I cried. <laughs> I was just crying because I just, it was a guy who grew up in love with James Warner's music. It was just to see that acknowledgement of his contribution to Star Trek meant so much to me. And it just, man, he, it was brilliant just yeah, the, what they've done with the music the way they have called back to so much of what's come before not just to uh, the movies but also even the other series that were outside the next generation i love mm-hmm. how they've tapped into voyager several times yes for seven to nine and it's uh it's gorgeous. And ad, the, the mention of Admiral Janeway. And I, I've, I've just been, I've been holding out hope. I never saw anything about Kate Mulgrew being part of it, but I've just been holding out hope that we would get to see her. Because um, I honestly think that she, she turned out to be my favorite captain um, of all the captains. Um, I, just, I enjoy watching her. Um, but yeah, you had mentioned, you know, Jerry Goldsmith and one and five being the ones that he, he did the soundtrack for, but, um, one of the pieces of music that they they've used a few times when, when Worf's been on screen is the, the Klingon battle theme that came that originated from the original motion picture. Yeah. And, um, and I love it. I mean, you know, they've used variations of it, um, over the years, but never the, the exact score that was used then. So, um, yeah, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed that. I would argue that the best Star Trek movie score is, in fact, First Contact. And I know there's some hardcore fans who might take offense to that because, I mean, I think for a lot of folks, the first one is the winner because that's where Goldsmith built the things. Mm. My argument, though, is I feel like when he finally got to come back to that Star Trek with that film, he got to perfect the themes he had started decades earlier. And yeah. Worf getting to have the Klingon theme turned into something heroic to me was one of the perfect examples of that in that score. But there's even yeah. also the added aspect. I love that as a next the, a film for the next generation cast. He also had pieces within it that were written by his son. So in a sense, I mean, it was a score that was also the first in the second generation. Right. Yeah. Which, no, it, that, that was I, I will be in that camp that first contact soundtracks is actually my favorite there are there are elements of other soundtracks that are that could be my favorite pieces but in terms of the overall composition um 
that both has a movie for the next generation crew yes. and and as a soundtrack uh were were was easily my favorite and it's not even it's not even close yeah I will say now. I will come back to that fifth movie. The fifth movie of Star sure, Trek. Sure, yeah, yeah. Let, let's let's bash the the worst Star Trek well, movie ever made. Well, no. Here's the thing. I think the biggest sin committed. I think it's easy to forget about the fact because you really haven't heard him do a lot in recent years. But Shatner is an author. He's written a lot of books, um, including and, his including his character's own resurrection. Resurrection, right? And so it. I think a lot of the problems with the film is that he was structuring it like a book. And you can cut, if you look at what he, all the stuff that's being done in that film, the plot, the way it's constructed, the way the characters are handled, it has a very book design to it. Mm -hmm. I could see it working as a book, but as a film, it was awful. And it really does kind of highlight that there is such a significant difference between writing a film script versus writing a novel. There yeah. is a lot of different, while some of the skills overlap, they are still radically different in the results. And yeah, yeah. Just, I, you, you see what how it can go so wrong. It probably didn't help that it was coming off of a, a very wonderfully written three movie arc. Um, yes. A trilogy within a series of, of movies. Um, and, and so you're like, oh my gosh, The Voyage Home wrapped up that the three movie cycle so well. And now what are we doing? Oh, we're going to look for God? <laughs> what? I was so shocked when uh, they, they in uh, Strange New Worlds, where they actually are, they actually brought back Cybok. They did, but uh, I think that version of it makes more sense because he's yes. he's he's definitely way more fanatical and and more of a threat than this one was. Who I know we're we're seeing him as as an older character, yeah. and and so he's probably softened some anyway. But um, but he was just way more theologically driven than fanatically driven yeah. and um i don't know i don't know it just it it fell so short of i mean then and then you get the undiscovered country right after that and so it's sandwiched between you know this wonderful three-story arc and this excellent like the best movie of the it's right there with wrath wrath of Khan. oh you know yeah. it's the best movie of the original crew and then you have this this sort of sidebar of a story um, but, um, but yeah, anyway, I think we could probably fill an entire podcast, you know, just ranting about the fifth movie or just about Star Trek in general. So yes. for the sake of everybody who is not at all interested in Star Trek, um, we're going to move on though. I don't want to leave music just yet. Uh, I'm curious. Yes. Okay. Sure. Um, I live long and prosper to you too. Um, <laughs> but, um, a peace and long life. Is that right? That's the appropriate answer. Um, Anyway, um, so composers, um, you talked about your love for James Horner, and I'm curious who uh, your favorite composer is. Um, I will say before you respond that I, I, I will take the populist view myself and say that I cannot get away from James, John Williams because, I mean, not only has he created these brilliant soundtracks over the years um, that that really they're they're so character driven that his music is so character driven and really embodies the writer's mantra show don't tell like you showing me um what these characters are but he's also dude's like 90 years old and he's still creating brilliant oh, yeah. scores and and composing them himself and conducting them himself and showing up to academy awards like you know eh, whatever i'm just 90 
you know, and I mean, I gotta love the dude, but um, I'm curious. Um, I, 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 I'm gonna hope yours isn't John Williams because I just stole it from you, but, oh, but no. go, go. Okay, good. My guy is Marco Beltrami, hands down. Mm -hmm. I love Marco Beltrami's work and he is one of the few composers. There are scores by him that I ha I've listened to that I've never I didn't haven't even seen the movies before I started listening to the music. Oh, really? Uh, the film Underwater, uh, the hmm. the deep sea horror movie. He did the score to that. I can't remember if it was Buck Sanders he did the score with. I might be getting that wrong, but it's a great score. I still am waiting to find a. Uh, writing project to use as my background music but i just loved the music loved it but my favorite by him is easily three ten to yuma uh which was a western he did yeah and it was just it was such a brilliant concept on that score and it's got my favorite piece by him in it too which is called bible study oh my god it's such a good piece but they with that score he took a very interesting approach to doing the scoring a western which was that traditionally what you see a lot of composers do for westerns is they will take modern day instruments and they will try to play them in a way that evokes the western themes mm -hmm. he was like i want to take the the instruments from that time period and play them in a modern way and that was mm -hmm. his approach to it and it pays off beautifully he does okay. a great score i'm not that familiar with him i know um he did the world war z um if i'm remembering the right person he did the world war z soundtrack and i i i do like that one um i don't know it through and through but i know i i always pay attention to when it's orchestral soundtracks i always pay attention to it when i'm watching a movie enough to that i can actually get distracted from the movie if it's really good um and i do remember that one he got that's actually where he made his bread and butter he became known as a go-to for horror films mm. which in fact probably his best work in recent years horror wise would be qu a quiet place oh right he yeah. did do that one and he did scream too didn't he yes yeah i mean the there's scream, very the little movies. in the horror it's very there's very little stuff you can find in horror that he has not done or even horror tangent my introduction to marco beltrami was the score he did for blade 2 mm. and it's not my favorite score of his but it's got some great pieces in it and it shows off his range a little, but it, you know, he doesn't just, and he's definitely not limited to the horror. Um, he did the score to Free Solo, the documentary about uh, climbing. Uh, and it's not, you wouldn't think of Marco Beltrami as the guy for that score, but he did, did a really fun job with it. I like some of the pieces that are in it. And it's actually more of an enjoyable listening experience than some of his other scores are. I mean, if you, if you're, someone like us who's listened to a lot of movie music you can definitely recognize there are some scores they work for the film but they are not going to work as a listening experience gotcha. by themselves gotcha. and some of his scores fall into that camp but there are a few of them that man they just nail it yeah see now i gotta go back and listen to a quiet place because that that movie was so driven by quiet you know yes. that the score was so much more important but um but yeah now i don't remember enough of it but um, all right. Well, then I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot because these kind of questions always kill me, um, though. For this one, I actually do have an answer. What is your favorite orchestral soundtrack? That's a tough one, man. Even even if you land on one of your favorites. It's like, which is your I, favorite children? You know, honestly, I, I feel bad going back to it. But man, 310 to Yuma is the one. 
It is. I mean, I just, to me, that particular score really nailed it. And after that, trying to pick a second, that's where it gets near impossible. If I was being honest, though, it would probably be Star Wars. But even then, it's a toss up between The Empire Strikes Back and Revenge of the Sith. Mm. Revenge of the Sith gets a gets a slight edge only because he did Williams really did a much more varied score for the Star the Wars films with that one and really any of them I don't yeah. I don't feel like any of the other Star Wars films have the diversity of theme to it that that film did because there's mm. like a few pieces that are just kind of come out of nowhere yeah but work yeah not sure no um though I could I could have multiples here um my one of my favorites is and probably will always be um john barry's score for dances with wolves interesting that's a good pick yeah because it's i don't know i don't know if it's just that it's there's so much calmness to it and yet power behind it that it's something that 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 i i can use to like really center myself at times um certainly not my walking um soundtrack but um that's that's more of my hair bands from the late 80s um but uh but definitely um it's just i don't know that i love the movie anyway especially the extended version of it but um but there's just something i don't know there's just something about it that 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 hits me in the right spot i've come to realize i think probably the most versatile movie score ever for writers is probably hans zimmer's score to inception because the whole design of it was to evoke the feeling of being in a dream yeah and so that is very much what a writer does anyway when they're writing a story so it's like it doesn't matter you're writing romance sure are you writing a heist sure because it was a heist (laughs) film too anyway yeah but i mean it it doesn't matter what you're writing that score will work yeah plenty of times i've leaned on it if if you're going to go down the Hans Zimmer route, my favorite of his is going to be Gladiator, and That's a good it's, one. it's it's not that that for me. I don't know. He nailed that particular one. Yeah, and um, the the whole opening sequence, uh, the music that went to that battle sequence um, was was so so brilliantly done. Um, and then um, and uh, gosh, I'm totally blanking on her name. That Lisa Gerard that he had oh, come yeah. in that that he brought in to do the the um, the vocals behind it the the um it was just so good but yeah i think okay. for me oh sorry go ahead no 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 good good, good, good. well i was gonna say what his actually he actually has one of the scores where it's like i watched the film because of the the music for the film the uh, first time i tried listening to the score for interstellar it didn't connect for me but then i listened to it again while i was writing west of apocalypse during the last two last third of the book and it just really worked for me at that point. I came to where I love that score. And I will acknowledge, with the exception of Dune, that prior to Dune, that was probably his some of his best work, yeah. especially in recent times, because it just there was something about it was very distinct, I feel like, from any of his other work in some ways. Yeah. And I like fair that. Enough. Yeah, fair enough. Um, you had mentioned um writing when you were talking about inception. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm going to weave right into that because um, one of the things I like to do in this, um, the inciting event, is this this point in a, in storytelling when um, 
your your protagonists or protagonists are their world is is rerouted their their path is rerouted through one singular event that happens around them or to them and it's called the inciting event the inciting incident uh, the catalyst you know these kind of things um and it's what propels the story forward um and i always like to know when i'm dealing with authors as i am now what is your writerly authorial origin story what got you what what was that moment or moments when you said this is what i want to do um it started really young uh it started with comic books i was a i became a an avid reader of uncanny x-men when i was in i started in seventh grade and i would and i just it was like you know i got deep into it back this was like pre-internet and so i was taking advantage there were like ads in some of the old comic books where you could order older copies of the comics and i got to where i was living uh, for lunch i was living off uh ice cream sandwich an ice cream sandwich a day and i would take all the lunch money i had left over at the end of the week and i would start stockpiling it to buy old comic books online and there were a few times where i was like i was a little short and so i would shamelessly be go to my dad and be like yeah i'm i'm, I'm already out of some money for uh lunch so i need to get a lecture if i can and <laughs> would save it <laughs> so yeah it was man i tell you what i built up a hell of a collection uh when i was there but they never had to worry about me doing drugs uh, in college or high school <laughs> because all my money was going to comics until i started dating my wife at which point that's where all that money was going in fact she's right, why right, i eventually right. stopped collecting comics because it just was like i wanted to have money to take her on dates <laughs> yeah it's like what do i want more do i do i want sherry or do i want the comics which is it dude oh, that's easy we, choice easy choice oh my god one of the <laughs> she's never let me live this down one day she was over in my room with me and what does she find on the floor of my room no no playboys no it's a she-hulk comic book you dirty boy it was a she-hulk comic book and even worse it was the john byrne issue where it's like he has her jumping rope in the nude although it turns out they're faking it with the blur lines so that she's actually got a bikini on and my wife's looking at me my future wife's looking at me like I feel like I want to worry about this, but I don't know if I should. <laughs> yeah, even, dude, I mean, it's like, that's more than, I mean, that's decades ago now, and I still haven't lived that down. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's funny. So, okay, so comics, basically comic, the comic books drove your yeah, desire was, to tell stories. I started, like, I, I had these, uh, I had these notebooks where I was like writing down, uh, plotting out storylines over issues of comics and, you know, what would the ar individual arcs of the characters, uh, building up subplots and some of the issues with the lead up to like, you know, I had this thing plotted out for like about 250 issues. And of course, none of that will ever see the light of day. Not exactly. Kind of has a little. Um, but that kind of got me going. And I tried to write a comic book uh, a couple times and I even was going to try and partner with a, a classmate for an, a, as an artist and I came across this guy who was a published author in comics at the time and he I don't know how I crossed paths with this guy at this point no clue 
but he made a point to me about he one of the one things that kind of frustrated him in his career is that he had created this comic book and he eventually lost control of it to the artist he got he, it was no longer his he never got to work with it again and the art because the artist was the I, I assumed the publisher had the artist take it over completely mm. and he hated that he lost that and i was like wow that kind of made an impact on me and so i was like you know what maybe i should do this as a book and so i wrote my first book in high school and at that point i was not a very good reader outside of comics which is not a good way to be trying to write a book and let me tell you man that book was a disaster it was awful <laughs> it was awful i wrote the first book i ever wrote was actually like six uh short stories essentially i mean more like novelettes which is funny because i kind of is what I did with West of Apocalypse, but in a better way. But it was just, I bridged the space between these things with like journal entries because my biggest influence at that point, the few books I'd read that I really enjoyed, Frankenstein and Dracula. Hmm. And let me tell you, that was a weird ass book. <laughs> my wife unearthed it uh many many years later the man i had a printed out copy and my wife unearthed it and she, when she was in one of her spring cleaning fits and she started reading it and she's like you know there's actually some really good stuff in this and i was like yeah but it's surrounded by so much stretch <laughs> but she was like this was like way back before 2000 10 i can't even remember how far back it was now but she made the point she was like this was like when you ya was really starting to take off and she was like mm. you should try and recycle this and do it as a ya book and so that's what i did and the one of the biggest short stories i ever got published early on in my career was the deadlands which mm. is the title story of my short story collection and it was inspired by that uh, oh, wow. piece of dreck um, I, the book itself, the original was called the demon writers and the idea I had to figure out, I was like, all right, if I'm going to try to find a way to make a superhero novel and make it work, how am I going to do that? And so I started playing around with all these ideas. I wrote an entire book. The deadlands was actually cannibalized from the first third of that book. And I, it, it doesn't stand on its own as well as it could. And that's one of those things that always will frustrate me. But I also will admit that looking back, it wasn't going to ever ultimately as a novel be what I wanted it to be. Uh, I have since then written a manuscript that I feel like comes closer to that. And I'm hoping to get that out there in the near future. Yeah, cool. Um, well, okay. <laughs> I, I want to I want to make sure that we we can get to everything before we go. So um speaking of stories and writing i'm curious with the the job that you have as a dispatcher without crossing any ethical lines here are there any stories because i have to feel like there are some stories there that yeah. some people might not even believe um but i'm curious are there any stories that come from that and 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 also on an aside are have you has your writing been influenced in any way from these moments yeah. the biggest influence from working in 91 was actually the getting keep books it was funny because i was before i started the get it first getting keep book i was working on a book to take advantage of my 911 experience and i was writing a urban fantasy and i was going to make the main character a 911 dispatcher and 
man, the, there were just a lot of things going on in my life at that point were not so good. And my relationship with that book was toxic. I mean, mm. bad toxic. I finally got, I, I got about 10,000. I can't remember exactly how far I got now, but I feel like it was like around 10,000 words and it was structurally, it was working. But because it was tapping into so much bad stuff in my life, it was just a horrible experience. I don't know that I could ever go back to it. And I took a wooden sword that I owned at, when I was at my worst moment with that book, went out into the yard and started just swinging it repeatedly at a tree until the wooden sword was nothing but splinters. I just, and I was so angry and frustrated because it, it was one of those things that from a pitching standpoint, being able to pitch something with my nine-on-one experience, it was great mm -hmm. and it wasn't going to work. And I was so mad about it. And I confided into Sherry that night, you know, just how upset I was. And she said, what is it you really want to write? And the answer was immediate. I want to write the best damn vampire hunter book anyone's ever seen. Mm -hmm. That's what I wanted. I had no idea how valuable my knowledge as a 911 dispatcher would be for that book. Really? Yes. There was so much stuff that, I mean, it, that book actually was very much born out of a lot of my 911 knowledge. And there were elements of it that I got to take advantage of with it. it and, was and all I, I'm sorry, but all I can hear are 911 calls where people are like, um uh, talking about a, a vampire and please send the hunter and you know that kind of thing it's like there's my inspiration go ahead real world go. oh no yeah well i mean actually it was more like the important thing is i with that book it, i wanted to craft a real a story setting where it was very credible that this hunter and these vampires could exist in our world, and you wouldn't know they were there. And so working in 911, you learn how to think about what people are saying and what they're not saying. You learn what little details are important, what people notice and what they don't notice. Um, when I take a 911 call, I have to be able to visualize what's going on on the other side of that phone call mm -hmm. to make sure I'm getting the information that I need for my responders, whether it's for an ambulance crew or for police or both. And I need to be asking the questions that are going to get that the details I need, uh, because otherwise my responders are going to be going to a situation where they're not safe. And it, that can create problems for everyone at that point. Gotcha, and yeah. so it's it's not a talent everyone has, but it was also a matter of I got to translate to Gideon in ways that like uh, one of my favorite things that I did in what the second book was like Gideon, there's a shootout at one point. There are not many guns that show up in the book, but there was a point where there's a shootout and Gideon has saved up these used fireworks that he tosses out onto the street so that when the officers do get called because there were shots in the area, they call it roll by and they see what looks like fireworks. And let me tell you, don't let anyone tell you they know the difference between what guns and fireworks sound like. <laughs> I don't care if they're in the military. They don't know. They don't. I had a guy on the phone one time who was, he was like, it was 4th of July. He's mm. like, I work in the military. I was in the military for years. And I know the difference between guns and fireworks. At the same time, I'm listening to one of the fire, I mean, one of the police radio channels where one of the officers is in the area of the thing he's calling about going, yeah, right. I'm out here. It's fireworks. I'm looking right at him. I mean, he was watching the fireworks go off. Yeah. 
So it's like, yeah. I mean, that's it. Yeah. No, yeah, right? but we which, always assume it's not going to be real. But I mean, every now and then yeah. it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, though. Um, I, I was trying to, to think of how being an animal in dispatch would help your writing. And I'd never really considered how visual it needs to be and, and how because that's such an important part of storytelling is to really be able to get the details in there and to be able to visually draw the reader in. So that's, that's interesting that, that that's influenced you in that particular area. They've kind of fed on each other in a way. Um, mm. One of the best compliments I ever got from one of my coworkers was that she was always glad when she was working at police radio and she had a call to give out and she saw I was the one who had taken the call because she knew the comments entered into the call for service would make sense right and that was my writing influence there i know how to be concise i know what's relevant and i know what's not i mean I essentially i do flash uh non as part of my job i guess you could say and part of the challenge is just learning what to ask of the caller so that i get what i need mm -hmm. uh, and that's that's where most of the people who try to do the job just can't do it because they just don't know how to focus on what's important and what's not and it's it's not an easy skill to teach Speaking of not easy skills and being concise, I'm ready to do something here that uh, is going to put you on the spot a little bit. So get yourself ready. I'm going to tell you what it. I'm going to tell you what it is, and then I'm going to explain it. And the reason I'm going to tell you what it is first is because it's going to give your brain some time to get into that mode, and then we're going to see what you do. So All what right. we're going to do here is something that I am calling the five second pitch, oh, God. and what you're going to need to do is you're going to need to pitch to me and to prospective readers west of apocalypse in five seconds okay and and i'm going to call time and you're going to have to stop if you're in the middle of talking and then we're gonna we're gonna do it until you feel comfortable with your answer so um or until we've just done this way too many times <laughs> for it to be at all entertaining to people anymore so, um, so are you ready, Bill Bloom, to give us the five-second pitch for West of Apocalypse? All right, give me a second. Give me a few seconds here. Hang on, hang on. Holy crap! All right. I think there is there is importance here, and and certainly value to a writer because uh, one of the things that we're always told is the elevator pitch. You know, you have to be able to tell your story in the length of a ride of an elevator to an agent or an editor or or you know whoever you're trying to pitch your story to. Um, this is taking this to a different degree because you're really can still you're, you're distilling it down to a sentence or two, um, but it's also a great technique to really learn how to pitch your story yeah. five seconds is not much time and this no. is you're never going to have to pitch it in five seconds but um but i just want to see what happens because right. this is my show and i get to be entertained <laughs> so are you ready bill blue as ready as i'm gonna get man bring it all right and go alien tours the last night of the way the 13 took everything from her the night time her parents jeez all right we're gonna reset Holy crap. Okay. Are you ready? All right. And go. In a galaxy where all is lost, alien towards less than the way, and she's getting revenge. Oh wow, that's five five point three nine seconds. <laughs> well done. Thank you. <laughs> oh, good lord, man. That is brutal. 
I mean, say, did you remember exactly what you said? No. Okay, good. Um, I'm happy to hear that because uh, your just brain's like, spit it out. Um, no, because I mean, there's so much that you actually want to be able to say. And um, yes. so so now you're going to be able to take that and and like you're going to be able to take that and expand it to, I don't know, a couple sentences, two, three sentences, and then pitch it. Um, I was always very proud of myself with the weight of ashes because I had it down to two sentences, right? And and like, nice. yeah, it's like it's like young boy. Um, I said, a young boy is unwilling to accept the death of his older brother, so he recruits his friends to go to the witch on Spook Hill to have him resurrected. This story is about grief and the myriad ways in which people process it. That was not five seconds. I was very proud of that. And and when I started trying to play with that for five seconds, I was like, oh my gosh, I can probably spit out part of that first sentence and still make it interesting. Yeah. But it it's like it starts to lose so much of the context. And oh my gosh, but there's this theme. There's so many things I want to tell you about. Um, so well, okay, you 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 excelled. I, I can't I can't sit here and judge whether or not you gave me a useful five second pitch, but you managed to stop before I got to five seconds. So I give you credit for that. That was tough, man. I'll tell you what. The only reason I probably did as well with that, it, it, trying to get agents, there is like there are a few of them where they have a form that they use, Query Manager. I don't mm. know if you've used this, but uh, I am like, familiar. Yes, there's one of the things that you'll see a lot of them plug in there is in one sentence share your one sentence pitch for your book mm -hmm. holy crap man yes one sentence pitch yeah how long can that sentence be oh well, let me tell you because <laughs> faulkner, Fal faulkner made a career out of very long sentences <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah, that there was a yeah. There's that that definitely is uh, where you do cheat a little bit with the comma and. But yeah, I have to admit, I would love to see some of the worst of those submissions. <laughs> Cause yeah, because I mean, be entertaining. Because I mean, you could use a semicolon and still have it be one sentence, right? But you better use it correctly. Oh God! All right. Well, okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure everybody else knows that Bill Bloom has set the standard. He nailed it on his second try, oh. and um, and then they're all gonna be really angry because it's not gonna take two times. Um, <laughs> so, but um, much much. We got we got company. Yes, we okay. do. <laughs> yes, ah, baby, wicked, and the other one down wicked. there is Mocha. Please tell me that w Wicked is named after the Ewok. Oh, yes. Okay, good. That he was, is a there's... spoiled, rotten, little bossy beast. <laughs> just like just like they're supposed to be. Indeed. Uh, let me, and, let me get Wicked. We're going to oh, hang on a second. Yeah. Read that. All right, then you go. Then you go. Well, with, with Wicked's appearance, I don't really think there's anything else that we can do that. Uh, yeah, look at that. That's Mocha. She's the baby. She is oh. ridiculously... <laughs> She's like, oh my God, I don't even know how to begin, but she is just the neediest little thing you will ever meet. Well, the the dog the dogs have now entered the chat and we uh we have nothing better than that. So um so we're gonna have to stop there. Uh way to way to kill the show, Bill. Um <laughs> but I do appreciate you taking time. Um it's it's good to talk to you as always. Um, I look forward to seeing uh, more on West of Apocalypse and, and giving it a read. And um, yeah, so oh, yeah. thanks for being a part of it, man. 
Thank you very much, this, man. I appreciate this, having me on here. Yes. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for being a part of this thing I call a podcast. <laughs>